And I thought, well, I need a new podcast and I want to try and make it make me some money. I want to try and live off it. And what I've always wanted to do is make World War II history documentaries. So I'll do a World War II history podcast. And that's, that's where it started. An excerpt from today's guest who started his history podcast the year after they were invented. Angus Wallace is here from the popular World War II podcast. I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. Welcome back. Today's guest is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds. He spent many years working in film and television. He's co-founder of the History Network in the UK and hosts one of the longest-running World War II podcasts on the planet. And World War II history expert, Angus Wallace, joins us now. Angus, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, sir. How long has your podcast been running? <laughs> well, my I started in podcasting in 2006. Okay. Um, and we started the History Network mainly because I think podcasting, I think it sort of comes out invented in sort of 2005. And and I, I, I found them and I thought, oh, these are interesting. And then I went looking for history ones and realized there was a massive gap in the market. And there was a, a young chap doing the military history podcast. And I thought, what a fantastic name. You, I wish I'd come up with that name before you did. And they were very earnest the history was lacking the delivery was awful and the sound record was dreadful and i thought well for fun i bet i could do better than that and so i got a friend of mine to do the voiceover and that's where we started um and then we did i did a few more a magazine publisher got in touch saying would you want to do something with me i went yeah okay so that we did the ancient warfare podcast and then when I was coming to the end of my I'd always wanted to make factual documentaries and I seemed to get further and further from doing them so when I left working in film and television in 2016 I thought well I need a new podcast and I want to try and make it make me some money I want to try and live off it and what I've always wanted to do is make World War II history documentaries so I'll do a World War II history podcast and that's that's where it started um, with the conceit that I, I'm not an expert on everybody's topic. So what I want to do is get on people who know their topic and talk to them about uh, their subject. I don't want to regurgitate to the listener what I've picked up reading 101 Wikipedia and internet sites. I want to get the expert on, talk to them, have as nice a chat as possible to make it all flow, and hopefully we can get some history across that's got a really good solid background um all right history can always be questionable it's, you know, there's always different ways of viewing everything but hopefully it's as it's as accurate uh as as it's going to be what i'm going to what, what i discussed so that that was my premise for the world war ii podcast does the history network you launched that before the podcast what is the history network so we launched the history network.org podcast which was a 10 minute the, 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 the premise for that is it's a 10 minute essay in military history and the idea that it is that it's like a sort of a, a voice of god here's a 
history topic, military history topic, and we just we just we just tell you about it for ten minutes. It's not particularly in depth. Hopefully, you'll think, oh, that was interesting. Go away and find some something else about it. Or you might just think that's interesting and and leave it there. So we started those initially, and and it, it was literally called the history the history network because I could get the URL after mm. <laughs> after endlessly trying to come up with names for stuff and could you get these URLs and those URLs that's 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 why we came up with that and we covered I mean we, it still runs um we have I, I used to write them all I don't write them now I tend to just edit them and I, my, my my friend Nick um uh, narrates them we will do anything from you know ancient Greece uh we medieval history I can't think what the latest stuff is we've probably just stuff some conflicts in the 80s uh so we will cover any any conflict or any any new minutiae it could be a, a a gun or a tank or a, anything vaguely military we've we have got some quite some of the sort of interesting topics that are only just about military but they're interesting topics so we do 20 of them a year little 10 minute sort of vignettes of history the format's always slightly aggrieved as i've gone along the format slightly aggrieved because uh I really want to get across history by talking to talking to really real experts, because right. um, I'm always conscious that these are essays where you're regurgitating other people's history, and then you start to wonder how how does this sit within the historical context? Because they're so short, it's quite hard to get it across. So I always find them slightly dissatisfying, but, but very interesting. So they always sit peculiarly peculiarly with me. I see. Yeah, that that was yeah. the start. Did you have family members who uh, served in World War Two? <laughs> so, uh, I had my father got his call-up papers on his 18th birthday in March 1944, um, and he was sent into the Royal Army Service Corps. Now, his story was that he got tonsillitis, and so he he passed out late. And if he hadn't passed out late, he'd have been on um, ducks landing craft. Mm. Uh, just after D-Day. Anyway, so he ended up driving Studebaker trucks from Normandy to Belgium for most of the war. Uh, I have an uncle who flew Sunderland flying boats looking for submarines from uh, Scotland. And my other uncle, John, was a, a bomber in the RAF. And I think John, I'm not quite sure how he got into the RAF, but he was a public schoolboy and he was in right at the start. And John did over 90 missions uh, three tours with the RAF as a bomb aimer. As a kid, John was fascinated because he just loved the war. He thoroughly enjoyed the war. He he <laughs> couldn't wait to tell you about the war. His wife didn't like him talking about the war, uh, so he, he was often told to shut up. But if you ever talked about Europe, he'd just sit there going, I've been there. Oh, I've been there, I've been there. Been... I've bombed everywhere, you know. And then he'd rush off and get all these aerial photographs that he had still, that he'd taken... Uh, on his bomb runs, and he could tell you that's Dresden, that's Berlin, that's Hamburg. He knew where everywhere was, and he absolutely just was so thrilled uh, about his time uh, in, in the RAF. He was, he was like a big kid. <laughs> Fantastic. He was absolutely... Whereas my dad, if you ask my dad about the war, I think he was slightly embarrassed because I think he thought his war was a, a bit boring. Um, yeah. Although, you know, he had... There weren't tales of daring do. My dad's tales tend to be tended to be kind of uh, you know. Well, the winter of '44 was really cool, but we got we got these American Studebaker lorries, and they were great because they had heaters 
and wow. bench seats. So he said, you know, prior to that, we had lorries from the desert with perspex windows, no heaters and sort of canvas seats. So, you know, I, I, have, I had an articulated lorry with a heater and a comfortable seat that I could sleep on. And to his dying days, he liked to talk about his, his Studebaker truck. <laughs> well, everybody so, has their own memories from the war, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so they're not, they're not great stories of daring do, but they're kind of nice little glimpses of, of uh, personal history and odd, oddities like that was, uh, was my father's war. Yeah. Getting back to your podcast, uh, you've done hundreds of episodes by now. Is there one episode that stands out in your mind? <laughs> I've got to cheat because there's actually two. Uh, there's, there, there, there's two and they're, they're both for different reasons. Um, my favorite, most entertaining episodes uh, is um, uh, when I chatted to Mark Felton about the Italian VIP prisoners. So the Italians capture so they capture Richard O'Connor and his name in, in, in the desert in North Africa. And, and all these officers, they, they put together in their own VIP prison camp and they allow them soldier servants. Um, and these officers, and they kind of believe these officers being gentlemen won't escape. These officers just want to escape. They just want to upset the Italians. Uh, but they're frightfully nice about it. So when the Italians say to them, oh, we've just had some machine guns, delivered um but we can't figure out how to put together put them together do you have a do you have someone who might help be able to help and they have a sergeant who's an armor and at that time is one of their soldier servants and they send him down to put these guns together and then he comes back and he's pinched all the firing pins um <laughs> and, and then when they when they eventually do escape from this uh sort of imagine called it's esque castle uh it's a real storing of of daring do of these and they're all older gents they're all in their you know Fifties uh, and the oldest being Adrian Carton de Wyatt. I don't know if you ever come across him. He loved. He is a man who loved the First World War. I think he's shot twelve times in the First World War. He has an arm missing. I think his earlobe shot off. He has an eye missing. When they capture him in the Mediterranean, his plane had been shot down. He's in his sixties. His plane had been shot down, and he dragged the pilot uh, out of the out of his seat in the plane, and then swam a mile to shore with the pilot. Uh, and then refused to admit that he was concussed because he bloody well didn't get concussed. Uh, he was that is that kind of chap. So w and when he escapes, he'd flatly refuse to learn Italian. He couldn't understand why he'd want to learn that Italian language. What on earth would he need that for? So they he escapes with Richard O'Connor, agrees to take him out, and they pretend to be Austrian gentlemen on a walking holiday who can't speak Italian, which is why they're speaking English. And the two of them managed to walk, I don't know, 150, 200 miles before they were eventually picked up. But it's a, it's a wonderful story. And if it wasn't true, you could make it into Hollywood film and you'd go, this is just nonsense. This is just ridiculous. These old gents trying to escape and giving the Italians the runaround. And it's such a good story. That, that, that's one of my most enjoyable. One of my, the other, my, my, my cheat is, is what I found really opened my eyes to odd corners of the war. I think it's episode eight, 89. I, I look at Cork. So Cork only comes, it primarily comes from Portugal and Spain. Um, but the US designated as strategic material in the war because without Cork, you can't make engine seals, you can't make ammunition, uh, mm. you can't make bottle tops, seals for bottle tops. It's, it's a vital ingredient in everybody's war effort, but it comes from these two neutral countries. 
everybody is in Portugal and Spain trying to buy all these crops of cork. They've got uh, uh, the OSS is in there watching who's buying what corks, trying to second guess what they're doing with the corks. It becomes this really quite bizarre industry mm. um, where everybody's watching and everybody's desperate to get hold of, of cork. And the thing is, it's such a inane product. You wouldn't have thought much much of it would you You think well in the u.s there's they plant they they plant massive uh cork forests thinking we need to you know have our own supply i think by the end of the war synthetic rubbers have taken over they've found other ways of doing the same things yeah Um, but i find it fascinating that you know you don't think of these odd products that are vital to the war effort because you tend to just think steel and fuel um possibly coal but steel and fuels where it's at and it's not there's there's all kinds of other it's like the strategic bombing when they bomb the ball bearing factories and you think oh which which clever person thought of bomb bearings being a, a strategic product cork i just thought it was brilliant and it and it's particularly interesting because it's the neutral countries that uh, have the vast supplies of it i hope you're enjoying this episode next time we kick off april with new york times best-selling author Alex Kershaw, speaking about his new book, Against All Odds. Bob Maxwell, who I interviewed, said that that, we- that medal had weighed heavy. You're expected to be a superhero for the rest of your life. You-, you can't get a speeding ticket. You can't get drunk in public. You can't get drunk in a bar and behave badly. You, can't, you know, if you get divorced, everyone knows about it. I don't know. I mean, you're expected to behave at a level that... These guys in the war didn't behave like that. You know, before sure. the war, they didn't behave like that. They... They didn't want the Medal of Honor. They weren't looking for the Medal of Honor. They, they, were, they were just blessed that they lived and survived and came home, you know? That's next time. It sounds like there's a story there, you know, a story of, you know, like Cork during the war. You know, it's, it sounds like it would be fascinating. It, the, I mean, there is a book on it, but I certainly think that it deserves a, a bigger look. I think it... And the book written is from the perspective of one of the cork importers gets picked up by the American intelligence service. And they said, will you work for us? And here's some of their employees become, I think, I think work for the, I think they must work for the OSS feeding information back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's very much from that perspective. And it, it could easily be another book slightly opening it up from that firm's perspective. If you can find the sources, uh, of who's sure. buying what, and and I'm sure, you know, th- th- there must be, there must be um, papers in the British archives about cork, and yeah. no one's probably ever thought to look at them because it's you know, yeah, it probably is. Uh, you have a great interest in World War One as well, especially manpower recruiting problems in Britain. Talk a little bit uh, about that. So when I. Um, when I moved out of London, I I volunteered to work at, at, at the local archives and they just discovered they had some papers about men who appealed their conscription in the First World War. Um, and so I, I volunteered to go along and transcribe them. And what these men were, were men who... So let me step back a moment. When we introduced conscription in 1916, the, the idea is usually uh, we're short of men and you got your call-up papers and you went to war. But actually, in Britain, they allowed you to appeal your conscription. 
and somewhere between 20, it depends on regional areas, but somewhere between 20 to 50% of men choose to appeal their conscription. And these people are not conscientious objectors. Um, conscientious objectors appealing for you know, religious or, or political views make up uh, 2%. Uh, so they're just regular people. But we've never heard of them because in 1921, all the papers were ordered by the government to de be destroyed. And it doesn't fit in the narrative. So when you think about your family, you like to think, oh, my family went to the war. And you tend to forget that most of them conscripted and most of them volunteered. So we have this idea that these men just went to war because we needed men and they went to war. And actually, huge amounts of them appeal. So uh, I started transcribing these papers, got very interested, then went back to university to do my master's degree and thought, oh, I should really look at those papers. So I started uh, number crunching those papers and... I have a huge spreadsheet with 5,000 of the county appeal tribunals. So in uh, the county appeal tribunals, for, that's for the county of North, the North Riding. And below that appeal tribunal, there's 27 regional ones dealing with thousands. So Middlesbrough, uh, how do you mean? Okay. Middlesbrough dealt with you know, three or 4,000, which is one of the major, major conurbations. Uh, and if they, if they disagreed with their local one, they, they could go to their, uh, the county tribunal, if they disappeared with the county tribunal, they might be able to go to the national tribunal. So you get all these guys who are just sort of say, well, I don't, I don't want to go because my mum's ill. Or there's one guy who says, actually his wife, there's only one woman in there who's interested. This, mm. this lady applies for her husband and it's the only wife to do so. And she said, I'm very heavily pregnant. Could I please go once the baby's been born? Because at the moment I'm incapacitated. And the tribunal give her, well, give her husband a temporary exemption to the end of the month, which should see the baby being born. The tragedy is, as far as I can tell, the lady dies in childbirth. Mm. Um, so in theory, the, the guy would still have to go. And what I can't quite square the circle is the child lives, he survives the war, but I can't find out if he's still then called up and has to go. In theory, he should have to go legally. Right. And he, if if you stuck to how the law should work, he should not be allowed a second appeal because they said no, that that's it. But I can't quite, I can't quite find his military papers to see if he he goes or not. But there's all kinds of you know very peculiar stories. And there's it's not that these guys often don't support the war. It becomes a negotiation. So there's a lot of people turn around and say, look, my dad's elderly. Uh, we have a uh, forty acres of corn to bring in. Uh, could I have a three months exemption so I could bring, help my father with the harvest and then I'll join the army. And there's yeah. a lot of guys, a lot, of, a lot of what people say. And other people just say, you know, I work in this industry. Um, I'm producing, you know, steel or something. Uh, and it's vital to the war effort. Could I have an exemption? And it's up to the tribunals and say, well, actually, I think you're probably right. You, you are more crucial to the war effort home than you are in, uh, France. I mean, cause what most people forget is that conscription is not so much about getting men for the army. It's about managing the whole of Britain's manpower, because we took so many people out of certain industries. We start to have problems. Right. As we've, we've, yeah, we've they took 25 percent of the police force out of action. You know, and then there's a panic because we don't have enough policemen. So. Yeah. So then you have to start trying to find recruiting policemen, but then you can't you can't just take them from 
from anywhere. Um, they took too many miners, miners volunteer in large numbers at the start of the war because in some respects, you know, being in the army might be better than mining. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and so we have, they have to stop miners volunteering. So it's all about managing manpower. So, yeah, I'm now, you know, 73,000 words into my PhD, uh, negotiating the North Riding Appeal Tribunals, trying to figure out how it all fits together. And are these people really appealing against the war or are they just, you know, they're trying to fit themselves into the war as best they can? And I think that's the key takeaway. We we shouldn't be, I think the idea that the, the, the papers were destroyed in 1921 gives the, appearance that there's something nefarious going on and that um, these men were cowards and they didn't want to go. And I, I think that's, it shouldn't be viewed like that. They're certainly not conscientious objectors. These men are, are people who support the war. The vast majority of them, about 80, 90% of them support the war. They're just trying to fit themselves into the war or around the war as best they can, which and might not be in the army. These men that got their appeal and did stay home for various reasons, I know there was, at the time, some ostracism uh, of men who didn't go off to war with the white feather. Talk a little bit about that. See, I, th- I, th- I think the, sort of, the idea of that, that's more of a media construct. Because if you think that you know, any major industrial centre, so near me is Middlesbrough, it's one of the biggest, at the time of the First World War, it's one of the biggest iron and steel producing towns in uh, the country now that needs manpower there's hardly any appeals from Middlesbrough for the simple reason all those men will be automatically exempt because they're working steel mm. somewhere they might be they might be building ships or they might be producing steel so there must be a lot of communities where men not being in the army was seen as being acceptable because they are linked to the war effort right and certainly they handed out so just before they bring in conscription, they hand out um, in the Derby scheme armbands for men to say, you know, you could wear that to say you're not, you're willing to go, but you're doing something else. So, but, so I, th- I think the whole white feather thing, whilst I'm not saying it didn't exist, it's probably not as big as what we now think it is. I think it's probably it's relatively isolated and there must be communities across the country that just accepted that, you know, some men had to be at home. Certainly agricultural communities, you needed young men to work the horses. Right. Um, and whilst they also are targets for the army because young, fit men are needed in the army for horse, horse work, there becomes a, a discussion. And so there must be, you know, certainly, as I say, Middlesbrough. It gets more problematic, I think, when you get to... Uh, like the cities... Yeah, but they're different. You know, certain cities. It depends what your economy's based around, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah. I've got York near me, and that, York's interesting because it's a, in many respects it's an administrative and railway city, and so there's a lot of people turn up from the from the railways, and it's confectionery, a lot of chocolates and things, but the, it's also fundamentally has a, a large Quaker population. Oh, sure. Uh, and so, yeah. so it's from York you get the Friends Ambulance Unit uh, from Roundtrees of York. They start that, and there's I don't. Two or three thousand men who joined the Friends Ambulance Unit. So you get these people who also say, so you get in York, you know, I'm happy to serve, I'm happy to be in the army, 
but I will not bear arms. At which point they get conscripted, but into the non-combatant corps where they, they won't see combat. It's not to say they're not, you know, men do get killed in the combatant corps, but they will be doing labor work. They will be doing other things, but under military discipline still. Yeah. So it, it, there's a lot, a lot of people. Uh, that's where a lot of people go. So I, I yeah, I think there's probably a widespread, up to a point, acceptance of 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 men being at home. It, it probably depends on where you are to how much that acceptance is going to be. As I said, there must be whole mining and manufacturing towns where there will be a tremendous amount of men who yeah. never went because we needed it at home. Yeah. And you can't. They didn't want to put necessarily women into these really heavy industries. Mm-hmm. And substitute the men, and there was a you know there's a backlash against women in the workplace. Men didn't want women to go in because they thought they might never get their jobs back. But, well, it's, it happened in the uh, United States in World War Two. Rosie the Riveter, and yeah, uh, yeah, all that. Yeah, I sent my daughter to school dressed as Rosie the Riveter last year, and I'm not sure anybody had a clue who she was, even though <laughs> I I had it with a Rosie the Riveter pin on and the whole. Show. I thought she looked fantastic, and everyone's going, "Who's she? Rosie the Riveter? Who's Rosie the Riveter?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, the podcast is called World War II Podcasts and part of the History Network. And I invite everyone to check it out. Angus, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, we kick off April with New York Times bestselling author Alex Kershaw speaking about his new book, Against All Odds. Bob Maxwell, who I interviewed, said that that, we- that medal had weighed heavy. You're expected to be a superhero for the rest of your life. You, you can't get a speeding ticket. You can't get drunk in public. You can't get drunk in a bar and behave badly. You, can't, you know, if you get divorced, everyone knows about it. I don't know. I mean, you're expected to behave at a level that these guys in the war didn't behave like that. You know, before sure. the war, they didn't behave like that. They, they didn't want the Medal of Honor. They weren't looking for the Medal of Honor. They, they, were, they were just blessed that they lived and survived and came home, you know. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.